0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star
1: Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or
0: Google Play. Our guest today is Sam Hammond, who tweets at Hammond Cheese, and he is the Director of Poverty and Welfare Studies at the Niskanen Center. wanted to have you on talk about your work for Niskanen and then also kind of Niskanen in general. Why don't you say a a line or two about what is the Niskanen Center? Sure.
2: Um, Well, the Niskanen Center was born in 2015, so we're pretty young. It started out as a kind of libertarian shop policy shop that a lot like our street actually was uh, sort of believers in climate change and what and advocates for a carbon tax but uh, we've since you know grown way beyond that and now the way you can think of us at the high level is we're a full stack you know policy operation we do everything from immigration to climate to technology to my field which is social insurance and underneath a sort of tier intellectual tier which is about defending the global liberal order from uh, the contemporary attack that um, is facing really around the world, but domestically in the form of populism on the left and the right, and including the Trump administration. So that was really a big pivot that we made after the 2016 election, but it's come to define a lot of what we do now and a lot of what we're pr- planning to do in the future.
0: Niskanen within libertarian circles or policy circles or whatever has been the source of, of some controversy. We had Jeffrey Tucker on the program uh, a while back, and he said some dismissive things about Niskanen that they were opportunists. Maybe I think, he, I think his words were something like, it's a liberal libertarian think tank whose purpose is to attack libertarians, something like that. And you guys did a a conference a month or two ago, maybe that was kind of basically, what would the future of the conservative movement be like post Trump? And that got a lot of favorable press from suspicious figures like Jonathan Chait or uh, the, the New Republic or whatever. So you know, the David kind of Brooks, yeah, David Brooks. Yeah, right, right. So you know, that's kind of, you know, the I guess the the critique of Niskanen is, you know, William Niskanen that the center was named after was a pretty libertarian guy. He was in the Reagan administration as an economic advisor. And now, you know, the the critique is, well, the policy agenda that is advocated by Niskanen is basically indistinguishable from what you might get from ordinary non-Bernie type Democrats, and that you're not in any sense conservative or free market or <laughs> anything like that. So, so how do you defend your your existence? We're going to put you on trial here for a couple
2: minutes. Sure. I, I guess at the beginning, like there is some narcissism, narcissism of small difference right um you know early on and this is partly because Jerry Taylor our president was still reeling from, you know, the PTSD of living 23 years in libertarian, hardcore libertarian, you know, environmental policy and energy policy, and then moving away from that, partly also due to some of the sort of unsavory, you know, social and racial stuff that sort of brews beneath the surface, you know, antipathy to the Civil Rights Act and stuff like that. Uh, there are in some corners of libertarianism. So some of our early stuff was discussing a bigger view of liberalism, like small L liberalism, classical liberalism, and trying to gravitate away and point out the you know the seeds of some elements of bigotry and you know in, in the American libertarian movement, particularly insofar as it's still in some ways a descendant of like the old right and Southern New Confederate kind of stuff. Uh, and the, oh, those criticisms are always like pretty narrowly targeted and like pretty like upfront, about we're critiquing this aspect of libertarianism, but um, sometimes when you write those things, especially when you use those labels, right? People will do the the hashtag "not all libertarian" <laughs> type thing and and take personal offense to it. When really, if you're not associated with any of that, and and you know, I've got plenty of people, plenty of friends who are like left libertarian or the Charles Koch Institute, who uh, I used to work at Mercatus, which is a, which is sort of a the offspring of the Kochs as well. And like those places are great; they hire IHS hires libertarian trans folks and stuff like that. Like the, the libertarian beltway movement is quite distinct from, you know, the people who go to the libertarian party (laughs) conference every year. And so the, maybe some of that initial antipathy was probably downstream of that sort of like feeling like they were being lumped in um, but obviously you know until relatively recently we all described as, ourselves as libertarian while making those critiques so it was really like that aspect of um, you know internal reform trying to critique the ones you know and you now since then we've sort of dropped that label libertarian in part because uh, it doesn't describe all of us um, I think of myself as just more of like a, a liberal small liberal. but um, the way Brink is Brink Lindsay, our vp of policy has put it is you know we're trying to make liberalism whole again which i, I really like that line and the, some of the history there is like you know at the turn of the 20th century there was this like breakup of the liberal idea into sort of two halves there was like the high liberals who went on uh, to you know, promote civil rights and uh, the sort of Rawlsian sort of welfare stuff, and then there were you know the classical liberal split that uh, retrenched you know within the within the the conservative movement with you know the fusionist wing that included war hawks and and also social conservatives, and you know a lot of that is I feel like it's breaking down. And so there's aspects of what Niskanen talks about, which do draw from more left ideas. But then there's also a lot of stuff that we talk about that draws from pretty far right ideas and economic freedom is probably paramount among those. So like the way I sometimes describe myself is like, I'm basically a Nozickian about economic rights. And I think, you know, one of the things that contemporary Rawlsians get wrong is, you know, Rawls listed economic freedom as a kind of basic liberty. That's why I've worked on issues like, you know, being able to be paid for your organs, stuff that is otherwise kind of controversial. The big difference is that I I don't equate social spending and taxes and transfers as like the top priority of, you know, constructing a free society. I think liberty has a lot more to do with
0: opposing them. You don't. Yeah. You don't Yeah. Right.
2: And in fact, you know some of the, some of the stuff we've done that sort of questions the normal narrative is say is to point out well that you know there is this kind of positive correlation between the size of the welfare state and other uh, metrics of economic liberty and personal freedom, and I don't think that's like a total accident. I think there's some political economy under, undergirding that.
1: Let's let's then turn to your, your recent article or paper on the free market welfare state. Uh, I believe one of the lines in it is, the combination of free markets and limited income security is fundamentally unstable. So what do you say to a critic, let's call him Doug, uh, that <laughs> says that the, that sounds like you've lost faith in the free market?
2: Well, if you conflate the free market with a small federal share of GDP, you know, a lot of what modern governments do is basically transfers. And it's, um, it's different, it's qualitatively different than, you know, what Hayek talked about in terms of central planning, right? And, you know, Hayek in Constitution of Liberty talked about how, you know, Britain at the time was more centrally planned than Sweden, because Sweden had, you know, universal pensions, but they didn't nationalize the railroads or (laughs) try to, you know, you know, nationalize their health system. The first thing to point out is just like there is this difference between spending per se and economic freedom, and I think some people confused us early on as suggesting that we're, we should all become social democracies uh, on the on the like Scandinavian model. But really, the point to that is just to point out like, look, there's some extreme examples, some outliers that really call a question whether spending is the key thing that we should be worried about we should be worried more about can we construct new housing can we get a job without having to go through hoops to get licensed and credentialed can we you know do capitalist acts between consenting adults and that's like the kernel of freedom not do you have social security when you retire and to going back to Josiah's original sort of point about you know how would Bill Niskanen feel about this well you know there's some history behind why we're called the Niskanen Center which I could get into related to the you know when he passed away and the opening on the Cato or directors, um, but really, why we picked his name was because Niskanen, you know, while he was a libertarian, was you know well known and respected for questioning certain sacred cows among the libertarian world in terms of strategy and also in terms of policy. So Niskanen was the first person to really attack the starve the beast theory of social change, where we're just going to cut taxes and eventually the federal government will have to cut spending. And he we said, "Well, no, actually, if you look at the political economy of this, if you cut taxes without cutting spending." it feels like the government is free <laughs> and then that increases demand for more government because because people don't aren't paying the full fare of what programs cost you know and scannon also talked about you know targeting nominal gdp and having more a higher inflation rate and stuff like this which is now it's become kind of accepted wisdom you know you has got sumner and david beckworth at Mercatus center talking about market monetarism and stuff like that but not long ago like the only acceptable line in the libertarian world and monetary policy was, you know, free banking or the gold standard, which are two other examples of just absolute non-starters in the modern world.
0: Oh, there's Bitcoin now, too.
2: And then there's Bitcoin, right. So that that's a whole other can of worms. But what would be different about
1: your, your idea of the free market welfare state than the existing welfare state? Is there something different about the design of it, the sure. way the incentives work? Talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, the, the thing yeah. I keep coming back to, at least in recent history, is the fact that when we liberalize trade of China, we can... You know, debate the estimates of the total cost, but somewhere between half a million and two million manufacturing jobs were lost. That's not inherently a bad thing. There was also a lot of jobs that were created. But in the short term, there were pockets of the United States that experienced really dramatic creative destruction, but they didn't see the creative side of it. And, you know, we are supposed to have some form of safety net to catch those folks provide them some economic security, and potentially retrain them and get them into jobs again. But instead, social security disability was 30 times more responsive to the trade shock than unemployment insurance and trade adjustment assistance combined. And like that, that to me just is an indictment not of trade, foreign trade, but of our inadequate social insurance system. So there are different ways of approaching that. I would start with having more robust income security system. So if people do lose their job, and there aren't employers standing ready to to rehire them, that they don't have to, you know, feign a disability to avoid going bankrupt. There's been a, a kind of consistent withering away of unemployment insurance trust funds at the state level because of bracket creep and some other things. But the way other countries do it, the example I point to in my papers is that the Danish model of flex security where you know the the norm is we're not going to protect your job but we're going to protect your security and that's really what matters in the end and when you fail to protect people's basic economic security they they grasp for these proxies like they want to protect their job when it's not the job that matters it's their ability to put food on the table but if you don't have that baseline level of income security then what you get instead is demand for protectionism demand for Uh, labor regulations that make it harder to fire. And that's partly why there is this trade-off between social spending and other forms of economic freedom is because there's kind of two paths to economic security. You can either be stagnant, but secure, or you can be dynamic, but insured. And my fear is that for historical reasons, the US has been more paltry on the insurance side. And we've gotten away with it for long enough because we were such a big country. we were, you know, for most of the 20th century we were thirty to forty percent of world GDP. So we didn't really have like a country like China that could just have a shock of that magnitude. But you know, the twenty-first century will be the story of the US becoming a small open economy relative to where it used to be. And other small open economies have larger, more comprehensive social insurance systems. Precisely because they're small and open. We're kind of at crossroads. We can choose to go down a path that reinforces employment support systems. I've written about this new bill called the Elevate Act, which is a national subsidized employment program. Or we'll continue to generate demand for protectionist populist kind of politics. There's also good evidence that the places that were hit by the, the China shock became much more nativist on uh, immigration and a, a host of other issues, and it also predicted an increase vote vote share for uh, Donald Trump. So the point I make in that paper is just to say, hey, there's some political economics here. Like we talk about public choice, and you know, I, I went to George Mason, and I learned all about public choice economics. Uh, but public choice, if you look at it honestly, doesn't always point to the, the conclusion of small government libertarianism. In fact, there's good reason to think that having small income supports. Or none at all, um, and very dynamic, open, disruptive, volatile markets is just simply a packaged deal that does not work. So
0: you mentioned there's a choice between I think you called it a more comprehensive social insurance or welfare state, and some combination of stricter protectionism or labor market regulation, micromanaging in the economy in that way. When you envision Let's think about the comprehensive redistribution option. So, what, like, what do you think is lacking in the United States that you think would be necessary to ward off this sort of protectionist regulatory interference?
2: Uh, well, one difference in the U.S. and other countries, obviously, is the system of fiscal federalism. We, other countries, like like Germany, we can't just copy what Germany does because Germany has a very un- united unified government, centralized government. So within the bounds of U.S. federalism, you know, the first place I would look to is to start shoring up the budgets of poorer states. You know, countries like Canada or Australia have explicit systems for equalizing the fiscal capacity of their provinces. Because if if we're committing to having a sort of level of service and public assistance across the country, um, if you're a very poor state like West Virginia, you need to have some extra money because you don't have the tax base of California or Massachusetts. And I think that would actually be like it's kind of like coming at it from the side. but I think it is a big explanation for why some of the poorest states in the country were left sort of unawares of and didn't have the adequate social support systems to respond flexibly because they were basically cash strapped. So that's the first thing I would do. But the second thing is by comprehensive, I mean there should be low barriers to entry. So take trade adjustment assistance. It's just totally ineffectual program. Even though I'm talking about this, this topic for, you know, probably should just be abolished. Like it's, it doesn't actually work. Part of the reason is if you want to access it, you have to like demonstrate that your job was lost to foreign trade, which if you know, that's hard enough if you're in the in an industry that's directly affected, but imagine being in an industry that's like downstream. It's like, how do you even do that? And I think that is like a reflection of this sort of reluctant welfare state that the US has where... It's not just TAA, but it's TANF, it's it's SNAP, it's the major sort of income support programs that we have in the country that we make it extremely difficult to access. And it, once you do access, it comes with all these strings attached that sort of treat you like an undeserving poor person. When in fact, the welfare state does a lot more than just help the deeply poor. It also provides a safety net for everybody, including people who are working and who could be disrupted in a hypothetical world where automation takes away their job or trade with india or or a big populous african country when those countries come online there's going to be more trade shocks and I, I i think we're just not ready for that because we were so big we were so closed compared to the rest of the world that we didn't have to think about it and when we did think about it we invested in these sort of piddly after the fact narrowly targeted hard to access programs and you know and and having another report that comes out that talks about oh look look how much we spend. We don't need to be spending more. It's kind of missing the point is our composition of spending and how bad we are at actually building in effective safety nets.
0: So take some of the examples that are out there, right? You talk about social insurance. So Democratic candidates out there have put forward a variety of different proposals. There's free college, Medicare for all, some sort of, you know, government healthcare, $15 minimum wage, maybe that's more on the regulatory side, a child allowance, right? So- Mm -hmm. uh, uh, monthly checks for kids, and then um, universal basic income, right? So everybody gets a check like Social Security, regardless of of age. So which of those, if any, would are, are those the sorts of things that you were thinking about, or do you think those are the wrong approach? And it, you know, if so, what would you what would you want to see instead? Uh, well, take healthcare for example.
2: You know, Medicare for all on the Bernie Sanders model would be a disaster. Uh, it'd be the most generous single payer healthcare system in the world. It wouldn't get off the ground in the first place. But if it did, it would you know. Bankrupt us. So, but set that aside, I do think there's a case on a, on a level of values uh, to talk about universalism in the case of healthcare and how you get there. We're really constrained by the path we've already walked down. So, you know, half of all Americans get health insurance through their employer. That is bad, both for, you know, economic security of, of people who want to switch jobs, but also for the broader health of the economy. So, you know, we have a plan called Universal Catastrophic Coverage. There's different, uh, different ways of implementing it, but one of the goals of that plan would be to provide a baseline of insurance coverage. You can do it th- through a number of private or public means and begin the process of moving off of an employer-based model, which, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really good il- il- uh, illustration of how our kind of like third way of dealing with welfare, where we, you know, we make it seem like you're getting it through the private market, but actually there's this massive tax exclusion, which which essentially amounts to a, a big subsidy to pl- private sector uh, health insurance, uh, employer-based health insurance. And then we get to pretend that, oh, that's just the private sector. But in the end, it ends up being kind of bad for economic freedom and dynamism because it leads to job lock and all this uh, other kinds of sclerosis. Right.
0: People, are, pe- people are afraid to change jobs or maybe start a business because they they going to lose their health insurance.
2: Right. So- you know, on, on, on principle, I want to move away from that system and go to a more universal system. How that looks is, is probably too detailed and policy wonky to, to get into right now. But that's an example of, you know, Democrats are right on the values, but they have, for internal political reasons, just insane ideas of how to get there. And that, that to me, re- represents an opportunity for, you know, people on the right of center to say, hey, you know, we're not opposed to this goal of universal coverage, um, but we have a better way of getting there, and that way is XYZ. So that's that's like an example. The idea is like raising the minimum wage. I, I would abolish the minimum wage. I think it's a disaster as a policy. It, it's regressive. It leads to higher prices for the kind of consumption that poor households use. It's not effective poverty policy at all. It's a good example of what happens when you, of the kind of like more regulatory approaches people take when we remove spending from the table. It's like, if we're not going to spend more money to increase the earned income tax credit or something like that, then we'll do these other things that are mandates um, and appear costless because they're not, they're off budget. And then the the, the other one you mentioned, the child allowance, which, you know, not not only am I for that, but I'm kind of, me and a few other folks are one of the reasons why Sherrod Brown and Michael Bennett even have a, a child allowance bill. I think it's a great idea, in part because child poverty is much higher in the U.S. compared to other, even Anglo- Saxon countries, and the main reason is because we spend much less on child benefits.
1: Well, and you—you uh, you recently reviewed Oren Cass's new book, *The uh, Once and Future Worker*. He's another recent uh, guest on our podcast. Tell us a little bit about uh, your thoughts on his book and his approach, and how well it would fit in with uh, what, your idea of the free market welfare state.
2: Uh, Oren's book is interesting, so I, I agree with you know a lot of Oren's diagnosis, and much less on his prescriptions. So. I found Oren's book kind of fascinating because it, it, at one point it sort of feels like a conventional conservative book talking about the value of work and, and the dignity of work. Uh, but like beneath the surface is like this searing critique of global capitalism. <laughs> and it was,
1: it was, I kind of thought it was kind of a, mo- a more polite version of uh, Tucker Carlson's recent diatribe. Well, but you're yeah.
0: Tucker Carlson, aren't you? Aren't you, Sam? this is, well, this is what's
2: weird <laughs> about this <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pro the diagnosis so i like i'm actually just finishing up a piece uh responding to to scotland's income so five thousand five hundred word rebuttal to my tucker piece but you know part of the issue there is there's a sense of we can't talk about the cost of trade and globalization you know we, we can't talk as as if like trade of china hurt anybody because if we do we're just going to provide ammunition to the barbarians and so we just have to be kind of idealistic about it and we have to you know keep our eye on the net net benefits of trade uh, because they are large they're just very diffuse (laughs) and if there are people in a community that lost their you know only furniture factory and you know if we do a regression and we find oh 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 crap um, their earnings have fallen their labor force participation has fallen Their suicide rates and deaths by alcohol poisoning have increased. Uh, And also, you know, in the context of the Tucker piece, they're, they're marrying less, they're having fewer kids. This, I think, is a disaster. Like, and it's one we have to talk about honestly. And my fear is that if you ignore those kind of things, you, the only people who do talk about them are the quote unquote, the barbarians. They're the protectionists and, the, the nationalists. So, you know, they're, they're sort of like acknowledging that they're talking about something real that has to take place. But to acknowledge that Tucker had a point doesn't endorse his prescriptions because he wants to close the economy. Uh, is to say, hey, there is a point here and there's a better way of dealing with it. But to, to deal with it appropriately, we have to drop some of our small government predilections because it's going to require more robust invest, investment and training and employment support and all these other things that are going to cost money.
1: And I think a lot of those items were were actually in Cass's book, correct?
2: Yeah, so I agreed with Cass on on a number of points. Like he wants to shift more resources out of liberal college models and into apprenticeship and skilled training. I think that's just a no-brainer. He would like to create a wage subsidy now I critique it a little bit as inconsistent in my review, but like there, there's a lot of merit to the idea of what I prefer, which are employment subsidies, which are more on the demand side. You pay employers to hire hard to employ groups, and you can do that in a totally decentralized way, in a way that pulls people into training on the job, uh, because it turns out that college-based training programs, the kind that TAA funds, are really ineffective and just a waste of money. So I think that's the the kind of cast. Got the right diagnosis in the right realm of the kind of policies we need to be thinking about. There's some other parts of his book that I just reject, which are like, oh, uh, we should be really aggressive in the trade war of China. Or, uh, you know, we should... Uh, he puts a lot of emphasis on, uh, on environmental policy, which to me is looking in the rearview mirror. I, I totally would agree with him that a lot of stringent environmental policy has probably... Uh, Harm the ability for the industrial economy to be as energy intensive as it, as it could be, but I think for ideological reasons, he's unwilling to think about you know the way renewable energy is going to basically make a lot of this debate obsolete.
0: Let me just ask about the funding side of this because taxes are the kind of the flip side of the spending equation. So. You know, some of these things, whether it's a child allowance or uh, more wage subsidies or more trade assistance or whatever, the question is, well, how are we going to how are we going to pay for it? And again, there have been a number of ideas put out there recently. So, America's favorite newly minted Congressperson, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, says we should have a seventy percent marginal tax rate, and then uh, I believe both Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have proposed uh, wealth taxes, right? Mm-hmm. So. Instead of an income tax, where you get taxed on the new money that you make, uh, the wealth tax is a tax on everything that you own, I guess, basically above a certain threshold. So, what do you think about those ideas?
2: Well, for like, if we're talking about raising revenue, um, the AOC tax, for example, doesn't raise much revenue. It, to me, the bigger issue is not the wonky. What will these marginal rates raise? Uh, my problem with those proposals is they're they're really symbolic of this like left populist sort of hatred of the rich and you know i'm (laughs) pro-wealth i just want wealth to be created in productive ways and so when you just lump in all billionaires as equally corrupt uh, i feel like that sends the wrong message someone who invented a a new app that goes global uh, because we're in a global market can reap enormous returns but they only even then at the end of the day they only capture a small fraction of the social returns that they generate so i have no problem with that and i want to reward that and i want society to kind of like symbolically project that that's a good thing the problem that the real kind of wealth inequality that matters is the stuff that is purely rent seeking so you know i I wrote a critique of the aoc proposal by pointing out that a lot of the worst forms of wealth accumulation in, in the u.s is not the very rich but the upper middle class who own most of their wealth in the form of housing which is appreciated in value because they restrict zoning and that also has feedback in terms of uh, access to quality education and there's this like weird dynamic in the in the democratic party where you know a lot of the intellectual class are like they're they're like lawyers and doctors and dentists and professors uh or journalists and they are all making you know a quarter million dollars a year but they're not maybe not the journalists but you know <laughs> they're not super they're not super rich and and when they answer surveys they all say they're middle class but actually they are, you know, the top 10 or top 5% of the, of earners in any given year. And there's like this internecine war in the democratic party between that class of privileged upper middle class folks and the super, super rich, many of whom, you know, they attended Harvard with, uh, and they feel a bit resentful. I feel like of, the people who made made even more than they did. So, you know, I kind of have a, pro- I have a problem with that stuff on two levels. One, because it's anti-wealth. And two, because it feels like it's this war between the upper middle class and the very rich when we should be talking about things like poverty and people who are just... Completely out of of the discussion.
0: I will say, just as a a personal note, that so my my household income is quite a bit higher now than it was, say, ten years ago. But I feel like I have a lot less money now, just because I have more financial obligations. I got kids, so you got to deal with daycare or have some. You got to have someone to watch them, which is expensive. You got money for college funds, healthcare costs, uh, mortgage. I could easily see how someone could be making a considerable amount of money, but they certainly don't feel rich because they feel kind of squeezed because in order to pay for the things that would guarantee their kids... You know, entree into the elite classes of the next generation—it gets really, really expensive, really
2: quick, right? Yeah, I, totally. I mean, this is where you know, going back to Tucker, he he did a whole monologue on on Elizabeth Warren's "The Two Income Trap" and, and why it's such a great, book, <laughs> good, good book. And and you know, it's 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 funny. You know, Elizabeth Warren is now one of the most left wing senators in the country, but for most yeah. of her adult life was a Republican voter. And there's room on the, given the way economics and the coalitions are, are shaking out, there's room for the Republican party to become more of a working class party. There's different ways you can spin that. They could become more protectionist, they become more racist, or they could become the party of single earner families, the party of blue collar workers. And a lot of the thinking behind my work is to, to say, hey, if, if the Republican party is going to you know, win those voters, they actually have to start like responding to their material interests. <laughs> and the Democratic Party, meanwhile, has become this party of the educated. And yes, they feel sort of cost constrained, but the kind of proposals that come out with, like free college, the people who have mainly benefited from that are upper middle class folks who didn't qualify for financial aid. And universal pre-K is essentially just nationalizing a city level benefit, which cities provide in part because Yuppies in the city treat it like a giant condo association and that's like one of the amenities they demand. Even even though, you know, like in DC where we have universal pre K, the cost per enrollee is about seventeen thousand dollars. If you're a minimum wage worker or any kind of working class person in D.C. with kids, you'd probably be a lot better off getting $17,000 <laughs> than sending your, your kid to pre-K.
1: So you, you mentioned coalition. So I've got a final question that I'd like to ask. I think it's uh, Kristen Soltis-Anderson has been writing a little bit about polling and how there doesn't seem to be much of a identifiable constituency of centrists that are economically conservative, but socially liberal. And how does that line up with where the the Niskanen Center seems to be headed. Is there already an identifiable constituency there? Is that an area that needs to be built? Does that constituency need to be built? Talk about
2: that a little bit. The problem with those surveys is like, I don't know what the heck fiscally conservative means. If it means a deficit hawk, then, you know, I'm not a deficit hawk by by any means. So like there's some sort of ambiguity about what fiscal conservatism even is. This is a, something that you know, as a libertarian or a former libertarian, like uh, libertarians have always been, you know, struggling with. You know, you, we're supposed to have a libertarian moment, but really the populace, the coalition, is just not there. But yet, yeah, a lot of libertarian policy gets enacted, and a lot, a lot of uh, socially progressive policy gets enacted. So, what, what, what's kind of going on? And my feeling is, is that you know, the kind of vision I have for a, a what I call like a free market welfare state, where you have very deregulated markets, but also a lot of social insurance that keeps. The gains positive sum for everybody like historically those have arisen not because there's like this big coalition that demands it but because there are competing coalitions that basically strike bargains together mm-hmm. um, and you end up with regimes that are kind of like on the the liminal space between two different worldviews you know you, you see this in explicitly in in denmark which i talked about earlier their, their flex security model like came from negotiations like almost literally between labor and capital where capital wanted the ability to hire and fire real easily and labor Wanted some economic security, and the bargain they struck was the system that that provided both. And so, like at that level, the coalition building is is more about you know taking a cross partisan or trans partisan approach that can convene people from both sides and try to strike the, the right kind of bargains. And that's sort of the idea behind, you know, what we call like bold moderation. We're not trying to be like the Howard Schultz kind of centrists that just, uh, take the average of two worldviews we actually borrow from the left and we borrow from the right, the best ideas that we see on both sides. And we try to find ways of pairing them in ways that sort of follow a bargaining line, a contract curve where there's actually some equilibrium rather than both sides polarizing into their corners and demanding like a revolution, um, so, you know, that's my general take. We wrote a paper called The Center Can Hold, but we're not really like centrist in that sense. Like we're kind of like a more of a mosaic than, than, uh, <laughs> than a melting pot, right?
0: I laugh just because uh, I know, Sam, that you're originally from Canada where the word mosaic has a special significance. Yeah, we could talk about immigration
2: <laughs> policy. Yeah.
0: If people want to find out more about this, where can they go? What's the website?
2: I'm org, or you can follow me on Twitter, Ham and Cheese. been on Twitter since 2007. That's how I got that lovely username.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thank you, Josiah and Doug.